Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with a terrific email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and of course, at our website, SubChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming at you from the old Guo family homestead on Mutton Alley in Beijing's decrepitly charming Xicheng District. I am joined from Memphis, Tennessee, not his usual home in Nashville, but in Memphis, by the decrepitly charming Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> thank Ase, thank you, sir, for joining me. Oh, um, thank you, Kaiser. That is charming. How is your motherland, sir? My mother or my motherland? The motherland, sir, is um, it's, gosh, um, it was it was it was a weird. Oh, I've I've had this weird whirlwind experience where, among other things, I witnessed. A surgical procedure performed on uh, to save the life of one of my colleagues at the World Economic Forum, and I happened to be the only person on hand at the time who was bilingual and had like a, a Chinese credit card because he had you know a Chinese bank card because he had to pay for everything ahead of time. But um, after I kind of yelled a little bit because of you know having to pay for things ahead of time, I was like, "What are you going to let the guy die?" Uh, we brought the holy the World Economic Forum brought the holy wrath of. Like the Weishengju, you know, the municipal health group, plus the Dalian mayor's office. The mayor himself called up the, the, the doctors and then they scrambled this like all-star team of medical professionals <laughs> to save this guy who, oh my God, I mean, he's, I really thought he was kind of not, not such good shape. Uh, anyway, they, they were frightened into saving him. I mean, if I am to get gravely ill, please remind me to do it while working for the economic forum in Dalian because uh, you know, they won't lose face in their big summer Davos to do, and I won't lose my life. <laughs> anyway, today we are delighted to be joined by Lucy Hornby, who is Deputy Bureau Chief of the Financial Times. She's back with us for her third go-round, right? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. That's hey, right. Yeah. Uh, she hurried down from the Great Wall just for this, so thank you for doing that. And for accommodating <laughs> anytime, Kaiser. I will come down for the Great Wall for you anytime. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Thank you. We're also joined by Lee Shaw, Senior Climate and Policy Officer for Greenpeace Asia who is based in Beijing. Li Shaw joins us for the first of what we hope will be many times. Li Shaw, welcome to Seneca. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks for having me. Uh, so why these two? Well, it happens that they both know quite a bit about two pretty disparate but very super important topics. The first is fishing and related issues. Fishing as relates to the contested waters of the South China Sea, I suppose, but also about the more general global issue of overfishing. Uh, Greenpeace has authored a very, very big, important report in 2016 about the Chinese fishing industry. And Lucy had a great long form piece about fishing in March, right? It was in March that it came out? The I end think of March? it did, yes, March. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And the second topic where, where Lucy and Li Shuo overlap is on soil pollution, uh, which is going to be the second thing that we're going to be talking about. Li Shuo, not directly, but, you know, hey, he's Greenpeace, all, all things, you know, that, that have to do with uh, the environment in China. He's very knowledgeable about. Uh, again, this is something that Lucy has written extensively about a couple of years ago. It's, you know, within Li Shuo's wheelhouse. So we're very fortunate that we can cover both of these issues with such an economy of guests. <laughs> I think it also is important, Kaiser, that you uh, don't take it personally when we get to soil pollution and talk about heavy metal as a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Because normally it isn't. Li Shuo, since you're new to the show, perhaps you could first tell us a little bit about how you got involved with environmental issues and particularly with Greenpeace. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, so I joined Greenpeace about six, seven years ago. Uh, I was just... uh, Freshly out of college, I studied international relations, a little bit U.S.-China relationship as well in college, and I just want wanted to do something uh, that is kind of related to my to my major, international law. And then just uh, in 2010, Greenpeace was, you know just happened to look for someone uh, who could cover the United Nations climate negotiation for the organization. So I thought, you know, they would send you to the front line to actually not only witness but also engage. Uh, with, uh, you know, international law making on the ground. So that was really sort of the dream job for me. And then I just jump on board. Oh, well, so Greenpeace has a reputation, or at least it used to have a reputation in the age of the Rainbow Warrior and such of being pretty extreme. But I mean, that doesn't actually jive with my own experience with the organization here, with the Greenpeace people here, uh, your colleagues in Beijing, all the way to the top of the organization, which I've had the privilege of meetings uh, with. And, and in my sense is that there's been a real image makeover. Well, I think, you know, my job and also, I mean, uh, Colin Quack, who, uh, you know, is, is also one of your, uh, frequent, uh, frequent guests. Yeah. Our, our, our job are kind of more of the, you know, suit and tie spectrum of, of Greenpeace. Um, I should mention, you know, just in Greenpeace engaging in some of the multilateral environmental negotiations, in particular of the United Nations. That's also kind of a legendary work of the organization. So quite privileged to, uh, to join that effort and, you know, leading Greenpeace policy work uh, in some of the UN negotiations. Yeah, very interesting. Let's turn to fishing now. Uh, Lucy, in March of this year, the Financial Times uh, published a nice long piece by you. The first part of it focuses on squid. Why squid? (laughs) You know, everybody had that reaction, including my editors. Um, But basically, one of the big reasons was I realized that you're you're looking at um, a situation where we fished out a lot of fish in the world, a lot of species, and so we're starting to go deeper into the ocean and we're starting to fish species that in the past were maybe only delicacies or only certain regional cuisines, but certainly not a staple globally. Um, and so squid seemed like a good one to look at where, you know, it really isn't in anybody's radar. It doesn't have an international treaty or, or international um, organization around it the way, say, tuna does. It's not considered fished out anywhere. It's not considered by some scientists that it's capable of being fished out even. So I thought it would be a really interesting thing to take a look at for that reason. And then the second reason was a very selfish one. My husband had a sabbatical in Chile. And I had to persuade the FT that they really needed me to be reporting out of Chile. (laughs) Um, And one thing that I found was that in Chile, you had, because the fishing stocks had collapsed there, 
you had all these politics around squid, which in the past wouldn't have been a fish that anybody would have cared about. And at the same time in China as well, you had a similar dynamic along the eastern China coast. So that also, there was a bit of personal interest involved there. So they used to eat loco, which is like some abalone-like shellfish, is that right, in, in Chile? And like make, the poor people would make enchiladas out of it or something like that? Yeah, well, I got that to be wrong. It turned out it was not enchiladas, but... Um Empanadas? Empanadas, exactly. Empanadas, it was empanadas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was basically like an abalone type thing and you would dive down and you would cut it and then you could eat it. It was a very mealy, kind of meaty kind of shellfish. But they decided to export that to Japan in the 80s and so they caused that to collapse. And so there aren't basically very many anymore. And then in the 90s, early 2000s, Chile had a very famous mackerel and hake export industry. And those species also collapsed. And so now, although they still do mackerel and hake, here you've got squid becoming more and more important to them. And then scientists saying, well, you know, squid can't collapse. It's impossible. It's different. It's not like fish. It's because it, it has a very short lifespan, right? Like a year and a half. Is that correct? Right. So the logic is the longer the lifespan of a species, um, the easier it is to destroy the species because, you know, maybe they don't reproduce till later. And so you're getting them earlier and earlier. And so they're not reproducing. Whereas squid is considered you know, because they reproduce in a very different way, then everyone says, well, that's fine. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized that actually you do see situations where in sea after sea, in North Asia, the squid population has in fact collapsed. What's the China connection then? Well, the China connection is that there is a town in China called Joshan, which is the capital of squid fishing in the entire world. Um, and Joshan is also happens to be the capital of the Chinese private fishing fleet. So in other Chinese ports, it's state-owned fishing companies, but in Joshan, for various reasons, they're private companies, and they've bulked up, and they've gotten bigger and bigger, and now they go as far as Argentina to go fishing. Um, so they're, they're in many ways similar to the state-owned companies in the fact that they can go so far, but they have the nice advantage that because they're private, they're willing to meet with you. Um, so that's nice. Uh, and then they also have a similar dynamic where none of the people I was talking to had fished squid when they were younger. They had been fishing something called yellow croaker. Then that disappeared. Then they went to something else. And then ultimately they ended up near North Korea and Russia fishing squid and having fights with the Korean fleets and the Japanese fleets. Wow. So, um, Joshan, where is Joshan now? It's, it's off the coast of Hangzhou or, or Hangzhou Bay? Or yeah, that, so Hangzhou right? Bay comes in, and then on the north side, if Hangzhou Bay is like a crocodile's mouth, more right, or less, right, right. the north side is Shanghai at the tip. And Ningbo on the bottom. And on the south is Ningbo, and then off Ningbo is an archipelago, and that's Joshan. Ah, okay, okay. So, Li Shuo, um, does China have what you'd call responsible fishing habits? I mean, how do they compare to other countries, whether developed or developing? And, and what, what, other major fishing nations should China be emulating in terms of sustainable fishing practices? Well, I mean, I think I should say, um, you know, all of the coastal waters around China, we're talking about Bohai, you know, Yellow, Yellow Sea, uh, East China Sea, South China Sea, the fishery resources there are pretty much depleted already in mid 1990s. And that's a major driving force, uh, for, uh, for Chinese fishing fleets to go further offshore. Uh-huh. Uh, this is an industry that we call distant water fishing. Uh, it means basically, uh, you know, you, you, you do, uh, fishing activities in either on the high seas or, you know, uh, in other countries, exclusive economic zones, uh, through bilateral fishery, uh, agreements. Mm. Um, and I think one of the primary, uh, driving force of, uh, of China's, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, increasing capacity in this distant water fishing sector is uh, the uh, the very generous uh, uh, fishery uh, subsidy uh, that the government uh, pay into uh, uh, you know you know the the fishing companies. Uh, we did some uh, statistics, uh, you know, uh, back in 2006, uh, the fishery subsidy uh, was about 260 million RMB. And in, 20, uh, in, in, in 2011, just five years later, it jumped tenfold to uh, about 2.8 billion RMB. Uh, so that's, that's really, uh, you know, uh, uh, driving uh, Chinese fishery fleets uh, to go uh, further and further offshore. Can either of you explain the economic logic of distant water fishing? How can that possibly be sound business? I mean, even with the subsidies, right? So there's um, a couple of things driving it, right? One is that, let's say you've invested in a ship, right? So a boat, a fishing boat, and the local waters are depleted. Then as an individual fisherman, you kind of have a choice. You either drop out of the business or you take out loans to get a bigger boat. And maybe um, in the case of these private fishermen, you join up with some other private fishermen who are making the same choice. You pull your capital, you buy a bigger boat. But then, you know, you go then mid-range, maybe you go to North Asia, you run into the same situation, you join more people, you buy a bigger boat, you have more loans. And ultimately, then you're pulling the subsidies, so that's covering roughly half your cost the diesel right but you know if you drop out you have all these loans right so it kind of takes on a logic of its own it's the logic of chinese overcapacity which we've seen in many other industries oh that's interesting so it's it's the same exact thing happening (laughs) very similar but then there's also the additional logic of you have um and this is what li shua and his group look into you know you have the chinese government it's not so much that they don't want to lose the fishing jobs per se but you also have very large fish processing industries here. So China processes, you know, if you're eating fish fingers in America or fish fillet in in England or even fish and chips in England, it's probably been frozen packaged processed in Qingdao or Zhoushan or one of these coastal cities. So there's also a strong incentive to keep these boats on the water, not so much because you have so many people in the fishing jobs, but because you have a lot of people in these fish processing plants and they need the fish coming in. Um, and then there's also a similar logic of you have uh, too much capacity in shipbuilding, so you want to keep these boats on the water because then they will order new boats from your bankrupt shipbuilding yards. So it's quite a complex calculation that doesn't Right. Really... I guess I had sort of mistakenly thought that it was mostly just the function of the of rising Chinese wealth and you know the comp- competent uh, increase in demand for better proteins and so you know more fish in the diet. It's not really that, though, right? I mean, it, it's 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 actually serving a gigantic international market. Yeah, absolutely. They're exporting process. almost half of what they're catching. Ah. So it's coming back here, it's being processed, and then it's being sent somewhere. At least that was what the impression I got. And I think you guys have looked into that as well, right, Lisa? That's right. Yeah, it's about 50% um, of uh, of Chinese, uh, um, you know, uh, fishery uh, port going, going overseas, and then another half. Um, you know, that is, uh, that is consumed in China. I should also say aquaculture is a major sector in China as well. And that's feeding primarily the, uh, the growing demand, uh, domestically in China. But you're taking the wild fish to give the pellets to give to the fish farms. Right. Uh, I believe the Chinese government has called uh, distant water fishing a strategic industry, um, which um, you know makes sense given the complex uh, chains of supply and demand that you've just been talking about. Um, but is there naming of it as a strategic industry? Is that just rhetoric, or does that actually have 
real-world impacts on uh, impact on on the fishing industry? Well, I think uh, you uh, over the past few years, you certainly see a very strong push from the central government. You know, the the, the diesel subsidy that we just mentioned. Another layer adding on top of that is some of the key provinces. I think three primary provinces in this sector are Shandong, Zhejiang, and, and Fujian. They are providing additional money. Uh, to this industry in the form of, you know, shipbuilding subsidy or, you know, helping, uh, uh, the industries, uh, uh, building better ports or, you know, uh, ensure better uh, supply chain. So that's, uh, that's really, uh, a priority of, uh, this particular three provinces. And they re- really see, uh, this as a very strategic industry, uh, for the provincial uh, economy. But then you also have this um, conjunction with the idea of national security or national pride and expansion. So one thing that I found was that you had these sort of the government fishing apparatus was also coming out with some quite nationalistic rhetoric that didn't on the surface appear to have anything to do with fishing, but there was sort of a confluence of interest, particularly in the South China Sea. Yeah, let's get to the South China Sea, but I imagine it's it's also impacting its foreign relations with other countries like where you were in Chile. Uh, China has burgeoning, you know, relations with, with other countries in the eastern part of the Pacific Rim, uh, or in, in Africa even. How, how is it, in, is, is China's aggressive distant water fishing policy affecting the, its foreign relations? But it's not necessarily aggressive vis-a-vis the other countries. It might be aggressive vis-a-vis the fish. If China has contracted with another country that's a relatively poor country and China has bought its fishing quotas or fishing rights or however that country manages its fishery, that country might view this as a welcome source of cash. So it doesn't necessarily cause clashes, but it does sometimes if they're overfishing in in regards to what that country feels appropriate. So, you know, the point of view of the environmentalist might not be the point of view of that country. And of course, Greenpeace has done a lot of work on this in East Africa. Lucy, I think it was about a year ago, there was an incident in which I think it was the Argentine Coast Guard shot live fire at a Chinese uh, fishing trawler. So don't you think that aggression against the fish uh, will uh, ultimately end up uh, in aggression against the local coast guard? Right. So they actually, so I actually interviewed a member of the Argentine. I'm not, I can't remember off the bat if he was Navy or a sort of maritime coast guard service, but I did interview a guy who was active in uh, intercepting Chinese boats. Um, and bringing them into Argentina when they had crossed into the Argentine EEZ. So Argentina is a bit of a funny example where, on the one hand, China and Argentine relations are getting closer and closer, but actually not insofar as the fishing is, because Argentina itself has a very strong fishing fleet. And so they don't like Chinese incursion into their territory. And so you do have these clashes, and they'll also haul in boats every so often. So that, in the case of Argentina, you have the problem of the Argentine fishing fleet their interests are being hurt by the presence of the Chinese fleet just across the border of the EEZ. But maybe you have another country which maybe is very poor, doesn't have such a large fishing fleet themselves, then it doesn't clash with their indigenous fishing fleet. They might be happy to sell those rights. So, so it really depends by what, country. What are some of the countries where and that do have a, a large fishing fleet? I mean, Japan obviously does and South Korea obviously does. Uh, Right. So interestingly, there were a lot of clashes between the Japanese and Korean fleets and the Chinese fleet in the 80s and 90s. And that actually spurred a a treaty demarcation of some of those international waters. Now that they're all overfished anyway, nobody's there anyway. So (laughs) Well, and also the Japanese are, uh, because of their aging population, they're actually mounting fewer and fewer fishing expeditions. Yeah. 
So, Lishua, you said that Greenpeace or Lucy said that you you folks had done something on East Africa. Can you talk a little bit about the the study that you guys did? Sure, it's it's actually in in West Africa, uh, in the coastal water of Senegal, uh, Guinea, and Guinea Bissau. Uh, We uh, Greenpeace, we we actually operate uh, three ships. One of them was uh, was in uh, in the coastal water of Senegal uh, this uh, April. Um, and uh, what we did there was uh, we did drone uh, surveillance and patrol with the uh, the coast guards uh, there, uh, uh, you know, uh, with, with Senegal. And then we found, um, I think, about 30 cases of uh, IUU fishing, illegal and uh, unreported, unregulated, unregulated fishing. About a third of those cases have Chinese uh, fishing fleets uh, involved. So IUU fishing is indeed quite a big problem. And uh, I think that that also reflects the uh, the Chinese fishery approaches in, in the distant water uh, uh, areas. Li Shu, what is Greenpeace's role in pushing Beijing on the fishing issue? And uh, how does the government respond? Uh, what policy changes are you seeking to affect? And what, if anything, has, has China committed to so far? Is it enough? Right. I, um, I mean, I think in our view on the distant water fishing industry and also the fishery uh, subsidy that is paid into the industry is environmentally devastating, economically unviable, and also diplomatically troublesome. Uh, as we just mentioned, you know, la- er, first half of last year, the Argentinian Coast Guard actually sunk one of China's distant water fishing fleets. We've also saw, uh, saw uh, a high profile uh, fishery disputes between China and Indonesia. Also early last year, several uh, Chinese vessels were actually detained by the uh, South African uh, Coastal uh, Authority. We think the nature of distant water fishing uh, is that once the boat is off the port, uh, it, it is very much a wild west situation. It is very, very, very difficult to keep an oversight on that. So one very effective tool to uh, prevent the environmental damages of this industry is to cut fishery subsidy. And this is uh, uh, one of our policy priorities. And uh, I think in the past, in particular in the past one year, We've actually saw some incremental progresses from the Chinese authority. We've seen uh, a tightening management and control from the uh, Chinese fishery authority on, uh, you know, uh, the distant water fishing fleets. And that's the reason that over the past one year, we haven't really witnessed as high profile fishery disputes as we saw earlier half of last year in Argentina or South Africa. Lucy, if uh, Chinese fish exports are so robust and so much of the world's processed fish is actually being processed in China and they're subsidizing this industry, isn't this something that a country might make a case in the WTO against China over? I suppose you could potentially. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure if anybody has. Nobody has done that yet. Yeah, I haven't heard any I'm not such aware. cases. Because then what you would be, how you would be doing it, though, you'd have to have your own probably fish processing industry, you'd have to be able to show that that was being hurt right. by these imports of processed fish from but, China. Which are being subsidized or having all their diesel Right, but the it. problem that might be difficult from the point of view of WTO is that the Chinese fish processing factories are not themselves being subsidized, right? So that might be a bit difficult to prove, but I, I'm not aware of any case. Are you? There, there is an on, you know ongoing um, negotiations under the WTO to cut fishery subsidy as one form of uh, agriculture subsidy. That uh, negotiation has been stalled 
since early 2000. Um, and uh, <laughs> so it's, it's been still there uh, for a long time. It's, it's one of the many elements uh, in, the, in the Doha round. So in order for us to really fix these problems that we're talking about, is it just a matter of government policy or is there something more profound that happens to happen on the consumption side? Do we need to change the way that we eat, especially the Chinese? Do the Chinese need to change their eating habits? And maybe as a part B to that question, what fish should we not be eating? So B is easier to answer than A. And for that, I will refer you to the um, Monterey, um, the Monterey Aquarium in, um, in California. Which is a beautiful place. I which is a great place. place and is also featured in Finding Dory. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. I haven't seen I haven't seen Finding Dory yet. Yeah. Your kids are too old now. Yeah, that's your are. problem. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the Monterey Cal- Aquarium, which is fantastic in all regards, also on its website has a, a guide to what kinds of fish to avoid. Okay, so I suppose many of us know we're not supposed to eat bluefin tuna, but what about maybe offering us a dumbed down version of the fish that we just aren't supposed to eat? Well, let me let me try answer answer it in this way. I mean, uh, I think you're not supposed to eat large fish because large fish tend to be older fish. And, you know, fish is a special uh, uh, animal. The larger and older the fish, the more productive they are. That means that the more eggs that they produce. So if you are fishing, uh, you know, out all the, all the older and larger fishes, the smaller ones are, you know, not as productive. Um, then that, that means the overall population of that species will, will shrink. Tuna then, no, no tuna. No tuna, yeah. Yeah. That's okay. I can live without tuna. I mean, let's all eat squid, right? I mean, squid. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some, in some ways, squid is, uh, supposedly the, uh, the big advantage, um, is that they, they only live for a year anyway. Well, maybe it's squeezing out the sale of pig bung or pig anus, which was apparently being sold as calamari. That is disgusting. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, anyway, uh, let's. This last topic before we move on to soil pollution is the South China Sea. Uh, is it a fishery dispute at bottom? I mean, there's an article from the Diplomat by this guy named Adam Greer published a year ago, and you know that was a little bit of clickbait, a little bit of hyperbole. But let's talk about the extent to which that's true that the South China Sea dispute is really ultimately about fishing rights and not hydrocarbons. I think, well, I think it could be about both. Yeah, sure, of course. um, It's the nine dragons stirring up the South. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But one piece of evidence, so I used to cover oil, and in Southeast Asia, they have this, uh, I covered diesel and um, marine diesel, among other things. Wow, they get you really specific beats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had very specific beats. But anyway, in, South, in, in China, they would have these fishing moratoriums where you're not allowed to go and fish at certain seasons, which is supposed to be for the health of the fishing grounds. And then shortly before that period would end, then the sales of marine diesel would spike because all the fishing boats would be buying up their diesel, you know, filling up. And then off they would go and bang like clockwork. Then September would hit. Um, usually the fishing moratorium is raised in August, more or less. And so bang like clockwork in September, there would be some clash between the Chinese and the Japanese in the East China Sea. And if you look back every year when there have been events that we've covered as journalists, they're almost always in September. Um, and so that is a case where, you know, you have two nations who for other reasons are, you know, jostling each other. But the friction and the clashes always come at the point that the fishing boats go out. And with the South China Sea, you see that often as well. I mean, the, with the Philippines, 
you know, this is uh, recently with the Indonesians. And, and the, in that case, the, the boat that was in the Tunis that the Indonesian uh, Navy pulled in, the Chinese Foreign Ministry, it was not within the Nine Dash Line, but the Chinese Foreign Ministry said, well, but these are traditional Chinese fishing grounds. Um, so I think there is a strong case to be made that what we're seeing here is the, um, the overflow from the fact that the Chinese waters are depleted. Right, right, right. That's, that's interesting. Aren't they using the fishing moratorium sometimes as a diplomatic tool as well to sort of dampen tempers when, when things are flaring? I mean, they'll announce an off-schedule moratorium just to, to get everyone to pull back. Uh, uh, well, they can the pull the- people out of the East China Sea. But on the other hand, if you look at it a different way, when you have a fishing moratorium in the Chinese coastal waters, then once people have invested to get bigger boats, then that actually incentivizes them to be fishing further afield. Right. Right. So you, 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 there's two sides of the coin, but either way, the, the underlying problem is that the Chinese waters are depleted. Well, this is a, a, a fascinating exploration of this issue. I'm, I'm, it's something I had really not paid a whole ton of attention to, I must be honest. Uh, and I'll, I'll, you know, looking for more, more stories on this topic. Jeremy Kaiser. Word of the day. Gua hu dao. Gua hu dao. Gua literally means scrape. Hu, which means beard, is incidentally also the word for barbarian, which is, I think, pretty interesting because doesn't barba also mean beard in Latin, as in like Barbarossa, red beard? Jeremy, you have Latin. Barba does mean beard in Latin, but barbarian actually comes from the ancient Greek, and they called the barbarians barbarians because the way they spoke sounded like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> It does. You barbarians do sound like that. But anyway, we are not barbarians, and therefore, today, we are delighted to be talking about a very particular guahu dao, or scrape beard knife. Exactly. Tihu uh, dao is also a word I've heard, tihu dao. Uh, I, I've never, I've never yeah. used it. Well, whether you guahu or you tihu, you should be using a Harry's razor, yes? Yes, you should be using a Harry's razor indeed, because with Harry's you get a great shave at a fair price, like the over 3 million guys, and maybe some <laughs> ladies too, who have already switched over to Harry's. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today, a $13 value for free when you sign up. You only need to cover shipping, which in my case is like 3 bucks. And that includes a weighted razor with five precision-engineered blades. Plus a lubricating strip and a trimmer razor at the end for that detail work. And you also get a, uh, a uh, container of rich lathering shave gel um, and a travel blade cover to prevent your blade getting covered in icky bathroom goop. <laughs> hey, you're taking that from... I know, I know where you got that that little addition. You listened to uh, Pod Save America, didn't you? Oh, I did. Yeah, that's right. I was listening to that last night. I wondered where that sprang <laughs> from in my head. That's okay. That's okay. We love that. Sorry, John. That's okay, guys. <laughs> to get your free trial, uh, just go to harrys.com slash subchina right now. That's harrys.com slash subchina. And don't forget the subchina because that way they know we sent you and you get a free trial. And now back to the show. Let's turn now to the topic of soil pollution. So, Lucy, a couple of years ago, you wrote a piece, another one of these long read pieces 
that I think you, you, you do so exceptionally well. Uh, and that was, I think, was in the aftermath of the Tianjin fire? Is that, I mean, maybe a little longer after that. But, yes, it came out shortly after. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, not that the soil pollution problem has gone away, but why is it relevant again and something we should focus on again in the present moment? Soil pollution seems to be coming up as an issue again. Well, part of it is because China has launched a nationwide survey, the second nationwide survey, but this time to try to pinpoint where exactly the problems are. And this was something they had hoped to focus on air pollution, which Li Shui is a huge expert in, and then water and then soil. And they've sort of come to realize that actually the the three things are linked. And so right now, this nationwide uh, soil pollution survey is underway, and it's a big business opportunity for those of you listeners who are economically focused, because lots of companies are gearing up to be soil remediation business Mm. companies, uh, with the idea that once the survey is finished and released, uh, that there'll be a lot of contracts out there to fix up some of the really worst brownfield sites um, a la the Superfund in the United States. And that's the expectation from a business point of view. I remember there was somebody that said, this is a China's love canal moment, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what one of the people I interviewed said. And uh, of course, Greenpeace has done great work um, highlighting very kind of egregious specific cases um, where, where you've had some very bad uh, factory pollution that hasn't been addressed. How should we think about the gravity of the problem of soil pollution? And if it is such a serious problem, to what do you attribute the relatively low level of attention it gets compared to air or even water pollution in China? Yeah, I mean, I think air, water, and soil slash food safety, I think these are really the three major environmental problems these days uh, in China. I think air pollution is kind of at the forefront, both in terms of uh, public and policy attention. Uh, we tend to have, you know, uh, more robust information and data when it comes to uh, air quality. And also um, the government also uh, attached great importance in uh, in cleaning up the air, uh, the air pollution action plan, which was, you know, a very comprehensive policy to tackle air pollution that was published in 2013. Given that said, I mean, uh, of course, when it comes to cleaning up the air, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, Beijing, in the current pace of cleaning up, will take until 2027 to, uh, you know, bring air quality to the national standard. Water is getting closer in terms of getting closer to uh, air when it comes to uh, policy attention. Mm. But the problem is still quite daunting. Uh, just, you know, just a, num- a few numbers, you know, 80% of uh, Shanghai's surface water is category four. That means not suitable for uh, human contact. Beijing is even worse. 40% of the surface water is category five, meaning not even uh, suitable for uh, industrial or agricultural use. And I think the fact that water is slightly difficult uh, compared to air in gaining uh, uh, public momentum because most of the water that we interact with on a daily basis are water that has been treated. So you actually don't really get exposed to polluted water in the same way as you are, you are uh, you know, with uh, polluted air. But soil is definitely the forgotten brother uh, uh. because it's so, you know, buried into, uh, you know, under, underneath. But it, it, it does receive, you know, all types of, uh, of pollutants ranging from heavy, uh, uh, you know, metals, uh, to, uh, to, uh, organic waste to, uh, toxic, uh, chem- you know, chemicals. About 20% of China's uh, farmland are polluted beyond national standard. 
I think it's interesting that what Lucy said that the three things are all actually one problem, part and parcel of the same problem. Can you explain that, how the three are actually so closely intertwined, either of you? Well, I think, um, you know, um, um, let, me, let me just point out, um, these three issues, um, you know, according to a Pew Research Survey, uh, they asked the Chinese public, uh, you know, annually, what's your biggest concern? These three issues constantly rank uh, on the uh, on the top tier on par with you know pollution in income inequality and other kind of conventional uh, political and economic concerns of the Chinese public um the um the three is also share um some uh, some similarities you have to establish a very good data system to understand uh, where uh, you know uh, uh, does the pollution come from you know how severe uh, is the problem there so it would require similar uh, you know kind of a, a, a governing structure uh, to be able to understand uh, this this uh, three issues um, uh, you know a lot of the uh, uh, the problem also uh, is a result of uh, you know uh, lack of law enforcement um, you certainly see that uh, uh, you know in, in air pollution soil pollution and water pollution but I think that there's the the sort of question you might have been asking was the physics of it, right? How are yeah, the three Yeah, a little related? bit more about that, yeah. So um, it's a bit different than in the U.S. So I grew up in New Jersey, and we are well known for our Superfund sites. Um, but uh, one characteristic of them is, is that those are sort of heavily polluted but very discreet spots where maybe a chemicals factory was or whatever. But what happens in China is... Uh, for what they call historic reasons. Let's say you had a, a, let's say a magnesium plant or a coal burning plant that was spewing stuff into the air, right? So that's your air pollution, right? Right. Um, but because air pollution was unregulated, essentially, all that smoke that's going up, it also comes back down. And so that there's this mist of chemicals and metals and whatever was issued into the air will float back down onto the soil. Um, and the same thing is those plants are probably using water for cooling. They're emitting heavily polluting wastewater. It's not uh, because of the way China was set up under um, the sort of planned economy. A lot of that wastewater doesn't get flushed out into a river, which might have been what happened in the U.S. in the 50s. Um, which is bad enough in and of itself. But in China, what they would do was they would use that wastewater for irrigation. Uh. And so you have these fans of heavily polluted soil that emanate out from a polluting plant. And that polluting plant may actually have been shut down and gone a long time ago. Um, but this, this sort of fan of, um, polluted unaffected soil could go on for miles, depending on, on how far the smoke went and how far the, um, the irrigation channels went. And so where does soil pollution actually come from? Is it more industry or agriculture that's to blame? Right. So it could be everything. So if agriculture, it would be mostly coming from uh, fertilizer and pesticide use on the fields. Mm -hmm. But actually, a bigger source is actually the pesticide factories themselves. Which, or or the, the water that they're using for irrigation, which is coming from wastewater from these chemical processing and power plants and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So it could be any kind of heavy metal industry, any kind of um, pesticide production is particularly toxic. 
Um, and in China, you have these pesticide producing factories or um, kind of scattered throughout the countryside, most of them completely unregulated in terms of what they were dumping and emitting. Um, so it's not, it's not entirely the pesticide application, it's the production. Um, and then you have all sorts of smelting of um, various metals, usually done, again, without any sort of filter scrubber, um, any sort of uh, controls whatsoever. Um, uh, battery plants, you know, you name it, anything you can think of. Um, and it's not going to be necessarily in a very controlled way, and it's not going to be in a very controlled place. So, you know, in the U.S., you might assume that, well, the ground in Bayonne or Kearney or Jersey City isn't going to be so great because we know that that's been an industrial center historically. But in China, um, both because of under Mao's time, this philosophy of moving industry into the countryside and then more recently, since the 80s, because of the way Chinese reform went, you would have these tiny, what they called township village enterprises. So this dirty industry is really scattered across the country in a way that if you're, for instance, an American, you might think, okay, Jersey City, Cleveland, like we know certain cities were industrial cities, but we would assume that a farm field in the middle of Indiana would be fine. In China, you can't assume that. And that's one of the problems. So, Li Shuo, what are the health impacts of actually eating crops that are grown in polluted soil? I and mean, how likely is it the food that we're eating right here in Beijing is actually contaminated in some way by soil pollutants? Like, you know, there was cadmium in, in, in rice a few years back that made the news. That's right. I mean, uh, I, uh, I think, I mean, uh, uh, there, there are a few hot spots um, when it comes to soil and food contamination. I would say, you know, uh, uh, Hunan is, is definitely, you know, one of them. Henan, Jiangxi as well. And, and the reason of that is, uh, you know, the, uh, some of the chemical or, you know, mining activities that Lucy just mentioned tend to take place or concentrate on a higher basis in this, in this few, uh, provinces. Henan, I just want to, uh, point that uh, province out, not only because that's that's your hometown, Kaiser, <laughs> but that's that's actually the uh, the base of four major rivers uh, in northern part of China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, the pollution there is, uh, I mean, not only soil pollution, but also uh, when it gets to, in, into the water, that's actually also quite concerning. But I think here again, before we get your listeners utterly freaking out, um, I think we have to remember a bit, although certainly the link between soil pollution and food safety is a very important one. The biggest risk of soil pollution is the people who are living on the polluted soil. And so, you know, there's a reason there's something called cancer villages in China. And so, you know, the people who are day in, day out living in polluted areas. Um, One thing about soil pollution that's particularly cruel, um, the whatever the particles and stuff that are in the soil, they can be kicked up by dust, kicked up by passing vehicles. And, you know, in China, often little kids are sent back to the countryside to be raised by their grandparents. Those kids are three feet high. That's the level that dust rises off the ground. It's from breathing it in. It's from eating the crops that they're growing in their backyard gardens. I mean, you know, before we get everyone freaking out, I think we need a sense of perspective. And the perspective is that for the most part, the food written, eaten by the wealthy city dwellers isn't the problem so much as the people who are living bang on these sites. Um, Can I ask about that? Because I I think it started, uh, the scare about air pollution, 2008, 2009, 2010, I think. Most of my Chinese friends who live in, in cities, in big cities, are pretty paranoid about what they eat. 
everyone has the idea that the food is not clean and must be contaminated in some way. And certainly some of that anxiety is, is uh, about soil pollution. So, I mean, how worried do you have to be if you go into, say, a Jinkolong supermarket, uh, which is a big supermarket chain in China? How worried do you have to be that you buy cabbage and that the cabbage has been grown in contaminated soil? I don't know where that cabbage came from, so I don't feel it's very easy to answer that question. I mean, the cabbage could be fine or it could be grown somewhere that you wouldn't want it to be grown, but you don't know because it's not labeled. And I don't know. Yeah, it's it's Russian roulette, man. (laughs) But when it comes to soil pollution, I mean, again, there is a food safety risk for the whole population, but I think we really should be very clear that the much bigger risk is really the people who are exposed day in, day out, all the time. I mean, you can eat a certain amount of whatever it is, heavy metals, and your body will process it through. It's when you're eating it continually at volume that it becomes a problem. Yeah, that point is very, very good. Let's talk about cleanup because it's a very expensive process. I mean, it's something like 120,000 yuan per acre of polluted soil, I'm I'm given to understand. Uh, What is the actual process by which soil is rehabilitated or remediated? So this is also a big problem with the size of China. So if you just have a really bad Superfund site, then there's this whole complex process where you bulldoze, basically you bulldoze the dirt and you bake it and you bake the pollutants out of it and then you bury it. Um, and you know, this is a whole sort of process on, on how it's a very expensive process. So it's obviously not practical for China. It might be practical for a few very polluted industrial sites, but it's not practical. Because of what you, you said, because it's so spread out. And right. It's you so can't dig up farmland right. here, there, and everywhere. Right. Um, so another thing that they're trying to do is in areas where they've identified, um, sort of widespread pollution, um, is to switch crops. So certain crops suck up the um, heavy metals, for instance, more than others. So you obviously don't want to be growing those crops in areas where you have heavy metal pollution. But maybe you could be growing, say, fruit trees where the fruit doesn't, for whatever reason, absorb this uh, metal. Or you could be growing other kinds of crops, ornamental crops, where, you know, you don't care if your hibiscus came from a place where it had that. Um, to remediate soil, uh, the best way on, on those sort of widespread places would be to not grow anything at all except certain plants that are particularly good at sucking the bad stuff out. And then you would grow those plants for a couple of years, uh, harvest all those plants, not eat them, um, and then basically uh, burn them. But then you have to be sure that when you're burning them, that you're capturing the emissions right, from that right, burn, right. right? So you don't just Otherwise, you don't it all. start it all over again. Right? Precisely. So, you know, there's, there's basically an inverse relationship between the shorter you want to clean it up, the more it's going to cost you. Right. Uh, if you have the ability to let the land lie foul, uh, fallow, cover it in beans or whatever, cover it, it in whatever, yeah. hopefully not beans, but you know, whatever it is over a period of time, it will gradually get better. So it's probably beans. Beans seem to do good things for soil. <laughs> beans, beans, good for your heart. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like it would be very expensive indeed to clean up all the polluted soil in China. So is the government going to fund this? And if it does, where is it going to get the money? And how much of a priority do you think this is for the Ministry of Environmental Protection and the party leadership? Well, I think if you read the uh, this soil pollution uh, prevention uh, plan, the idea there was very much about preventing soil to be further polluted, meaning, you know, 
the the clean farmland, clean areas not to be polluted. But、uh, it is, as Lucy just mentioned, it is fairly difficult and very very expensive to、uh, repair the soil that's uh, already uh, contaminated. Uh, you know, one interesting thing in China is,、uh, you know, a lot of the industrial areas、uh, around cities are now. As a result of urbanization being,、uh, you, you know, developed as residential areas, so one way that、uh, I know some neighborhoods、uh, and some,、uh, you know, local governments are exploring is whether the real estate developer can actually absorb the costs of it. Yeah, yeah, can spare some money to actually clean up. Uh, the soil that might be one innovative way of financing it. I but I just don't see uh you know there's any chance that public money can be devoted in this area in any in any big way. Um, I think someone did the math. If you want to uh clean up all the farmland in China that's already polluted, that's gonna take about one trillion RMB. So that's that's mission impossible. Wow. So I think there's a kind of triage, right? So the right. idea with this second survey, they had the first survey that gave us the scary number that 20% of the farmland is polluted, but you don't know which 20%. So now the second survey, the idea is to figure out where are the hot spots that you absolutely should not be growing crops, and you know, or you shouldn't be building schools or whatever,、um, and the ones that are so bad that you have to apply an American-style Superfund approach, and then where are The places where you can just switch crops, or you know, let it lie fallow for a certain fallow for a certain amount of time, and and basically kind of triage it. Right.、Um, and that that's the idea. the The problem with the the developers doing it, as Lisha said, that that works great if it's the edge of a city, and if the developer is responsible, and it's an area that's turning into apartments anyway. But It doesn't work so great if you're in the middle of nowhere where people don't want to live, or if the place itself is so toxic that a、uh, you know that a, a sort of、uh, a yeah. I mean, what, what developer is going to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll build in this remote place where nobody's going to buy, and I'm going to pour and it's toxic. Yeah, because、yeah, yeah. that really does great things for your property sales. Right, exactly. It does. Tian Tong Yuan in northern Beijing was built on a dump. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway,、um, so you guys had、uh, I, I remember in your report this、uh, state council so- soil pollution prevention action plan. She talked about a little bit.、Uh, it sets very ambitious goals, right?、Um, you know, six hundred and sixty thousand hectares of farmland soil remediation work by twenty twenty.、Uh, new quality standards that it wants to issue. I guess the current ones are like twenty years old already.、Mm-hmm. Uh, they return a whole bunch of polluted soil to forest and to grassland.、Uh, so. Are these realistic, and are they at all achievable? I mean, is this something that you guys worked with them on, or? Well, I mean, again, my my reference point is is air pollution.、Uh, as you know, as I mentioned,、uh, in the in the current pace of cleaning up the、uh, the air here in Beijing, it takes until twenty twenty seven for Beijing to be.、Uh, it's only ten years away. Well, it's <laughs> well, I mean,、uh, it's it's. Uh, you know, not not to mention the、uh, the higher World Health Organization standard. It will actually take Beijing until twenty forty six to meet WHO standard.、Um, and I I consider air as you know、uh, one area where、uh, China has made、um, quite some progress.、Mm-hmm. So in in that in that regard, sorry for the pessimism uh, here. Uh, I think I think water and Soil probably is a little bit more behind there. Yeah, yeah. So if I were queen for the day, the first thing I would do would be to stop building new polluting plants in places that are not already polluted. You know, I think that should be step one. And then step two is, to the extent that you can have greater controls on 
uh, smokestack emission and wastewater treatment, then you're blocking new pollution from going out. Right. And then meanwhile, you know, you, you just have to do again a kind of triage deciding for the areas that are already polluted. How do you address those? Going on from that, Lucy and Lee Shaw, there's the fact that controlling pollution often works against economic development. This is true in China, and of course it's true in the United States, where Donald Trump uh, sees uh, environmental regulation as a, a, a break on economic growth. So in China, how, how do the politics play out? Uh, how powerful is the Ministry of Environmental Protection, and how difficult is it to control pollution when it goes against commercial interests? Well, I mean, the Ministry of Environmental Protection has been and will be one of the weakest ministries. I think that's that's fairly predictable. But I think, you know, over the past few years, you are seeing kind of a shifting narrative. And I think, you know, the Chinese uh, authority, uh, you know, is, is, is not taking uh, economic development and being contrary with uh, with environmental protection. I think that's that's a new trend. But I think ultimately it really depends on the uh, on the political resolve uh, of the central government. I mean think imagine if uh, you would have the same political resolve to clean up the environment as you have uh, in anti, uh, you know, in anti-corruption uh, campaign, or in censoring the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if you put all the resources that you put into censoring, or or having, you know, fifteen police officers chase one poor dissident? <laughs> no, that's that's very fair. I mean, I I wonder though, because there are the things that have worked in in Western countries. I mean, enforcement, rule of law, lots of public participation, especially, and really com- just compelling companies to disclose uh, all these things. Are these things that can also be applied to China or are there measures that should be tailored more specifically to China's own peculiar circumstances? And, and if that's, if that's the case, if we need to take China's, you know, um, into account more, what are the solutions? Well, I think, you know, uh, the sheer scale of the environmental problems here requires very strong top-down measures. And I think in this country, top-down measures tend to work quite well. And I think we've already seen some uh, some early progress um, uh, when it comes to air pollution, uh, where, you know, quite strong central government drive kicks in and then, uh, you know, helps us uh, to bring down uh, air pollution. Um, so that's, that's, that's already, uh, I think that's already happening. I think on top of that, uh, you would really put all hands on deck. So information disclosure, you know, uh, you know, increasing public uh, participation, rule of law and law enforcement. I think you, you would definitely need those, those measures as well. The good old mass mobilization campaign from days of yore. <laughs> I think it helps. I mean, I, I think another thing is top down. I'm, I'm not so, uh, in accord with Lisha on how effective top down is because I think, you know, when you have top down, everything, then you end up having a lot of our other priorities. And that's how people get away with polluting. But one thing that I think has grabbed uh, the leadership's attention, and I think this goes back to your point, Jeremy, which I think is actually a false equation between economic growth and, um, and, you know, if you have less regulation, then you supposedly have more economic growth. Well, if China can't provide food for itself, that's viewed in the Chinese leadership as a very fundamental national security it's risk. It's a red line, yeah. 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 And, you know, that's something that's been true throughout the planned economy era, the Maoist era, 
the current era, you know, the ability to pl- provide food for yourself for China is considered to be extremely important. And so I think soil pollution, one of the reasons that it's jumped up on the agenda is it slowly percolated through the leadership's idea that, you know, if you have really bad soil pollution and you have food that's inedible, what are you going to do? And so I think that that has helped a lot, actually. So how realistic is the idea of China becoming a global environmental leader um, since Trump's election and uh, especially since he announced uh, his intention to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement? There's been a lot of talk about China uh, assuming the number one position as the leader uh, of environmental protection and against climate change. Is there any substance to the idea of China becoming a global environmental leader? Or are those cynics who uh, call it a bunch of hype uh, correct? Well, I think it is important to uh, contextualize that, Jeremy. I think, I mean, if you compare China, uh, you know, with itself, on you know, not a long time ago, uh, back in 2009, Copenhagen, it was really one of the villains that contributed to the failure of the uh, Copenhagen Climate Summit. And, uh, you know, just fast forward six, seven years, 2015, China, you know, through, uh, U.S.-China climate cooperation really contributed to the, to the success of the Paris Agreement. So I would say, you know, there are quite concrete progress on the ground when it comes to, uh, climate action, you know, the rapid development of renewable energy. On the, uh, uh, the coal consumption that's, that's been, uh, going down for the past three years. I would also say that, um, uh, interesting, interestingly, when it comes to climate diplomacy, I think that's actually at the very forefront of China's overall diplomatic, uh, transformation. I think you tend to see some of the earliest, um, opportunities and challenges, uh, that China will encounter in reshaping the world being reflected first. Uh, in the field of uh, climate diplomacy. Uh, you know, one example uh, in the run-up to Paris is, you know, every country, uh, you know, uh, was supposed to kind of define its position in the spectrum of international responsibility. And I think China uh, did that job uh, quite well. And that's uh, that's that's a major reason uh, why uh, the Paris Agreement uh, was uh, a success. I would also say that um, uh, the way that uh, international climate diplomacy is done, you know, quite, you know, heavily, uh, uh, technical, uh, and also norm, you know, oftentimes happens, uh, behind closed doors. That doesn't really help, um, you know, uh, the general public, uh, to kind of understand incremental progress. But I actually do, I mean, think if you, if you got deep enough in this field, you, you actually see, uh, China actually taking, uh, taking a stronger, uh, uh, diplomatic stance, uh, than a few years ago. Lucy, would you agree with that? Um, do you think that, that the cynicism is not quite as warranted as maybe what we hear out so often from our, our foreign hostile forces friends? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a bit more cynical than Li Chua uh, about this whole global leadership bit. Um, I, I think he's correct that China has has turned around in its approach to climate diplomacy. But I think on um, any topic, uh, whether it be climate change or some of the pollution discussions we've been having, China is first and foremost uh, going to act in the way that it sees as being in China's best interest, um, which, you know, is what you would expect from any country. Uh, but I would not expect to see China in any way sacrificing its interests um, for some perceived global interest. 
Um, and the flip side of that, though, is that I don't see that one good thing, I think, about a lot of China's pledges with the climate change agreement was that they were things that, A, Beijing thought it could deliver, so they didn't promise anything they didn't think they could deliver, and B, they were things that met China's own um, internal needs, uh, including issues such as we've been discussing, like um, addressing its own very severe pollution problems here, um, and so that that means that they have a better chance of going forward with or without um, a future to the climate diplomacy needs. But when you talk about global leadership, implied in that is that you're taking a step beyond your own national interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lot more cynical about that happening. But on the other hand, China is so big that even if China only acts in its own national interest, but as long as it sees its national interest as improving its pollution problems, then that's actually a, a step forward for the that's world. That's right. That's right. Well, Lucy and Li Shuo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. We look forward to having both of you back on again together or separately. Uh, anyway, stick around with us. Uh, make a recommendation for our listeners, won't you? And before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And if you like our podcast, by all means, please go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever you go to review apps. This really does help us. It means a lot. We've got some terrific reviews and great feedback from people. Keep it coming. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us? I'd like to uh, recommend an essay by one of my favorite contemporary Chinese writers, Xu Zhuyan. The essay is called The Anaconda and the Elephant, and it talks about censorship and self-censorship and how to be a Chinese writer in these uh, strange times of Xi Jinping. You can find it in English in translation on ChinaHeritage.net, the translation by Callum Smith. And we have published a... uh, and we have republished it on subchina.com as well with kind permission from chinaheritage.net. That is uh, Xi Jiyuan, the anaconda and the elephant. Does that anaconda refer to that same one in the chandelier that Perry Link talks about? Yeah, it's referring to Perry Link's anaconda, the, the snake that's hanging in the chandelier above you that uh, uh, doesn't, uh, isn't an immediate threat, but sort of like Democles' sword, it's always hanging above you, making you aware that you have to watch what you say and what you write and how you speak. Jumang, you dashang. Jumang. So giant python is how you say anaconda? Yeah, Jumang, giant python. Uh, okay, that's what I'm taking away from this. Uh, Lucy, you're oh, up. Oh, yeah, it's worth it just for, um, just for that vocabulary item, right. if nothing else. Lucy, what do you have for us? So I'm going to give a plug to my uh, former colleague at the FT, uh, Richard McGregor, yeah. uh, who just, he wrote uh, The Party, which was a big, um, a good seller among those of us who are interested in China. And he's just come out with his newest, which is called Asia's Reckoning. Uh, it's regarding China, Japan, U.S. relations. Uh, and Richard has dug deep. Uh, he ignored a lot of what I had to say about fishing, but it's nonetheless a good book. And so <laughs> I recommend everybody go read it. And then read the, you know, listen to the podcast to get all the fishing parts that he, he yeah, left Yeah, yeah, you can add in, every time I'd say fishing, he'd be like, oh, God, So fishing. he sent me a galley of that book. The first one didn't arrive. I got an empty envelope that said that it was, you know, the, the post 
post office had put something on it that said received in uh, with damage or something like that. Uh, I wrote him back. He sent me another one and I fell asleep on my bed reading it, fell off my bed next to my dog who then thought, I'll chew on this. And so he, fortunately he only chewed up the spine in the lower left-hand corner of the book. And so I can still actually read it. I thought you were going to say the dog ate your homework, Kaiser. <laughs> my son has a t-shirt that says that. It's pretty funny. I'm, I'm sure Richard will be glad to know that your dog is a uh, cons- consummate he, he, he reader. He d- devoured oh, it. Richard right. should be delighted that uh, somebody's stealing his book in this, in this age of mass illiteracy. He should be delighted that someone is actually taking the time to purloin his book. Last time Richard wrote a book on China in the party, which he just referred to, I, I, I was bombarded with questions saying, so does Robin Lee have a red machine on his desk? You know, that, that, that phone, the red telephone the hotline to, to well, at least it would have been Hu Jintao at the time. Anyway. So did Robin have, have one of those red telephones? No, no, he did not. He did not. He had a hideous portrait, an oil portrait of himself in his office, which I, I, we all sort of bristled at, but you know, apparently it was given to him by some important person and he we couldn't take it down. But yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Li Shuo, what do you have for us? Uh, I'm I'm actually gonna recommend uh, a Chinese book. Uh, it's called Huanjing Wajiao Guan Shou Ji. It's basically an autobiography of one of China's uh, earliest uh, environmental uh, diplomats. Oh. Uh, this gentleman named Xia Kunbao. Uh, he was born uh, in the 1940s and then took the college entrance examination in the 1960s and got enrolled to Beijing's uh, foreign uh, uh, language study university. Uh, you know, uh, learned English and then uh, was you know sent down to rural China during the Cultural Revolution and you know later uh, been reassigned to you know back to Beijing and worked for the State Environmental Protection Bureau as a translator to um, uh, Chinese environmental minister. So that's actually a quite fascinating book. Uh, you know, if you are interested in uh, the Cultural Revolution, you know, how does that uh, actually uh, uh, impact you on, on, on the individual level? Uh, and also, uh, he has very thorough account on his interaction with some of the key figures in this field, you know, the uh, uh, previous uh, environmental minister, Xie Zhenhua, for example. So, and also, I should say, uh, he writes in quite simple uh, Chinese, mm. short sentences. So, good, I uh, need that. <laughs> might be a good, uh, good one uh, for uh, some of your listeners who have solid Chinese uh, skills. So, has Xie Zhenhua read his book? I think so, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go way off topic here and, and recommend something. So, uh, I've, I've been ribbed a little bit about my association with heavy metal, especially during this second half of this podcast here. But um, really, the truth is the music that has lodged deepest in my soul is good old 70s progressive rock, uh, which is the most loathed of all musical genres. It's the stuff that uh, the critics hate the most. Uh, but there's a new book by uh, Dave Weigel, who is... Uh, writer for the Washington Post. He's a, 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 a politics columnist. Turns out he was a total prog head too. He wrote a book. Uh, I knew about it. I knew he was working on it for the last few years. It's called The Show That Never Ends, which is a reference to an Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, live albums title. Welcome back, my friends, to The Show That Never Ends. Um, it's called The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock, um, written from like a, a dedicated fan. Kaiser, sorry, can you, what actually is prog rock? So progressive rock, I mean, is, it's, it's a genre of music that attempted to sort of lift, uh, rock music out of the three minute 
pop song format, uh, to, to, to add elements of jazz, elements of classical to it and to make it a, a, you know, sort of a solidly middle brow or even aspirationally highbrow form of music, uh, where, you know, actual compositional complexity where, uh, you know, a, a wider range of, of sound, just drawing on a, a bigger sound palette. And, you know, of course it, it fell into excesses of just bombast and pretentiousness, but when it was great, it was so great. Uh, you know, it was characterized by really kind of long episodic songs that weren't, you know, they didn't fit into your old sort of verse, chorus, verse, bridge thing format. And it, uh, used a lot of odd time signatures, just sort of strange, diff- difficult. Um, it was just sort of cognitively really challenging, mnemonically challenging to perform, you know, technically very challenging. A lot of it, you know, is wanky musician music, but uh, some of it, again, is just insanely good. Uh, examples, you know, Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, um, ELP, of course. <laughs> yeah, so... That's it. I can't believe I just spent the last three minutes of the show talking about my weird fixation with progressive rock. But Lucy, thanks again one, once, once more you. for coming on. Lee Shaw, it was so great to finally meet you. Thank you. And following your work. Um, and you know, this, this guy is like, well, you just turned 30. So you have many, many years of, of service to the cause of the environment uh, ahead of you. Sure. Saving the earth 24 seven job. It is. You 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 must be friends with Matienzi, right? That's right. He used to be my TA, actually. Oh my, my god! Each other way back. Oh wow, wow, wow! A friend of the show. I mean, we love Matienzi. I mean, we love having him on. Um, one day I'm gonna have the both of you on together. It'll be it'll be like nerdgasm. <laughs> the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subchina. No. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care, Jeremy. Oh yeah, rock and roll. I am in the musical hometown of Elvis, so I think I need to say that. <laughs> All right.